0: This week on the 10A Podcast, Out of the Darkness with Sergeant John Mattingly as soon as I stepped into that doorway, waiting ambush style. As soon as I turned the corner, he shot. Went through my upper thigh on my left side, through the fem- femoral artery. I returned fire. Brianna was not asleep in her bed. The story unfolds from there and all the lies. They still have not told the truth about the case. They hear you got a white cop shooting an unarmed black female. Doesn't matter is, was it a good shoot? Is everybody okay? First question we always ask is, man, were they white or black? It's a shame it's that way, but that's what it is. He's going to exploit it. He's going to make as much money as he can and run. These two motorcycle groups and their leaders, they're taking these cops out. They Put a hit on them. They want to celebrate the death of one of you all or your family members. It was real before, but but when the FBI calls and says you got to go, they, they kind of put something in your head. And goes, oh man, I feel like I'm in a movie. The views and opinions expressed on the Ten Eight Podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. The Ten Eight Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to episode three eighteen of the Ten Eight Podcast. Out of the Darkness. I'm your host, Ten Eight, and my guest today is Sergeant John Mattingly, formerly of the Louisville Metro Police Department. His name is known for his involvement in the infamous case now involving Breonna Taylor. This happened all the way back in 2020. This episode was not planned to be so aptly timed by me. It comes on the heels of a news story that is going through the nation regarding uh, police violence, this time out of Memphis, Tennessee. We're going to cover both situations in just a moment, but first let's go ahead and talk about our sponsors. Let's go ahead and talk about them. Listen, it's no surprise to anyone that law enforcement agencies suck at getting the word out to their citizens they serve. Whether it's debriefing a critical incident or educating the public about various aspects of law enforcement, it takes a special skill set that too many in law enforcement don't have. In this ever-changing world of social media, do you, your agency, and your community a favor and check out TOC Public Relations, a company ran by former law enforcement to help you get your message out in an appropriate and professional way. Check them out on social media as well as tocpublicrelations.com. Let me tell you something you already know. Living a life in public service is a life of sacrifice, but you cannot serve the community or back your partner up if you're not physically able to do so. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal, more than 40% of law enforcement officers are obese. Other studies have found that police officers are 25% more likely to die from weight-related disorders like cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and even some cancers. Why continue to be a liability to your partners, your loved ones, your community, and yourself? Contact the folks at fit.responders and get your fight back. This episode is also brought to you by my new friends over at RTI Training, giving you the type of training that incorporates humor and knowledge that cops respond to. Listen, we all know that you will never retain anything thanks to death. By PowerPoint. So do yourself a favor and check out the new kids on the block when it comes to police training. They are revelationstraining.com. And, guys, I also want to tell you about our sponsor, Jujitsu 5.0. They just came out with the Jujitsu 5.0 app. It is the ultimate training tool for all law enforcement. Members of the app get on demand access to a huge library of techniques for the streets, grappling based workouts, yoga, and a monthly nutrition plan. They also have 24 hours, seven day a week access to Jason, the founder of Jujitsu 5.0, for personalized training assistance. So, go to the app store of your choosing and download the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app today. It's available for Android as well as Apple, so get on it now. Oh, and one last thing, guys. This week, we have a brand new sponsor that I want to tell you about, especially for those of you doing the jiu-jitsu thing. We have Fuzz Tape. What is Fuzz Tape? Well, it's jiu-jitsu tape for those people that don't take themselves so seriously. It's designed by cops who train, but it's made for everybody. It is finger tape. It protects your fingers from getting injured. It comes in rolls of four and in four different sizes. Also, they have clothing. They have lifestyle products available as well. And they're also accepting sponsorships. So go check them out. They're on Instagram at fuzztape. And if you want to buy some of their stuff, you can use the discount code 108fuzz. T-E-N, the number 8-F-U-Z-Z. T-E-N, the number 8-F-U-Z-Z. And again, they are on Instagram. They are Fuzz Tape. Check them out. And last but not least, this episode is brought to you by Thin Vine Wines. Thin Vine Wines is a mission-driven wine company that proudly backs first responders and the military. With a background in law enforcement, their support for police, dispatch, fire, and the military is unwavering. Thin Vine Wines donates $2 from every bottle sold to law enforcement and military-driven nonprofits. Making awesome wine is the vehicle. Making wine with a purpose is the mission. Check out their social medias at Thin Vine Wines on Instagram and Facebook and order online at thinvine.wine using the code 108, T-E-N, the number 8, for $10 off two or more bottles of wine. Now let's talk about the situation in Memphis. Actually, on second thought, I'm not going to. The situation in Memphis and comparing any other quote-unquote controversial police use of force is asinine. Yes, I said it. You cannot in no way look at the incident that's going on in Memphis and then look at any previous incident that gained national or global media attention, especially within like the past five or six years or so, and think that they're similar. There is no question in any same person's mind and think that there is any room for interpretation on what happened in that video. What you have here is a vicious act of ultraviolence by animals in police uniforms. Now, other incidents right, within the past five or six years that have been so widely talked about have either been more gray, you know, kind of teetering on that line of good or bad, or just flat out justified. But this one, in my opinion, there is no question is on the other end, it's completely bad. You can't say anything about this being good. And also, I think this is just the beginning of things to come. Now, if I want to go ahead and get my tinfoil hat out, I think that this is exactly what is coming to our society. You remember a few years ago when Chaz was a thing right out in Seattle? That's what BLM and Antifa want. They want to embarrass and illegitimize the police only to further push the defund and abolition movement that they have been so loudly talking about. And then when they do that, when they finally succeed, they can put their special police force together and really, then all bets are off. Then, you know, there goes society as we know it. Now, I may be talking out of my ass, but it makes sense to me. And I ask you all to wake up. Put your dollars and your votes to not do that. Now, as far as why this happened, could it be the lower hiring standards? Could it be that these people were just evil and they snuck through the background process? Could it be that the victim was sleeping with one of these officers' girlfriends and this was some sort of sick abuse of power mixed with personal retaliation? Unfortunately, I don't have these answers. Furthermore, it is out of my control. But the fact is that these individuals have been arrested and are going to go to prison for murder where they belong. So, any protests and riots subsequent have nothing to do with the actual facts of the case and have everything to do with media scapegoating, false narratives, and sensationalism. Speaking of scapegoating, false narratives, and sensationalism, let's go ahead and talk about my guest today and his ordeal. Sergeant John Mattingly, as I said, is formerly of the Louisville Metro Police Department. But before we get directly to him, I want to talk about sensationalist journalism And things that go like that. Between that and misinformation and quote-unquote fake news, it's nothing new in America. Now, you may think I'm just talking about recent years, but we can actually go all the way back to the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. But my favorite piece of history that has to do with this kind of warmongering or kind of hyping people up for no damn reason goes to the Spanish-American War and the term of yellow journalism. Now, yellow journalism is news that presents little or no legitimate or well-researched news, and instead uses eye-catching headlines for increased sales. Now, techniques that they might use include exaggeration of news events, scandal-mongering, and sensationalism, which I've already talked about, aka everything Fox, CNN, NBC, and beyond put out, right? There's no true news anymore. It is all sensationalism. But in the Spanish American War, two newspaper tycoons, John Pulitzer and William Randolph Hertz, were battling to see who could sell more newspapers. And since there was no satellite uplinks of live video footage, decision makers had to use newspapers to make their decision. Now, there was a photographer that Hertz had in Cuba before the war even started, and he reported back to Hertz and said, Hey, all's going fine here. There is no war in Cuba. To that, Hertz replied famously, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. And I've said this before on Instagram. I've had posts removed from Instagram regarding the fact that sometimes our news media can lie to us just to evoke emotion and things like that. The point being that this kind of misinformation can lead to many terrible things. Now, that's not to say that facts are being made up and that's the only way misinformation happens. Sometimes they leave out parts of the facts or they only put whatever fits into their narrative to the news media that they're trying to push. Now, remember that news media runs on advertising so the more views they can pull the more ad dollars get thrown their way it's a terrible cycle it's toxic and it's why i don't watch the news and it all goes back to my stoic stronghold focus on what you can control i can't control anything that's going on in that news i don't want to see it. Yes, it's important to know what's going on in the world, but really you have to take everything with a grain of salt because you're only getting a piece of the story. So all that brings us to our guest today, John Mattingly. He was directly impacted by the misreported and underreported facts of the Breonna Taylor case. To the extent that it had blowhards like LeBron James calling for his condemnation and motorcycle gangs putting out hits against him and his family It's absolutely surreal and it's all true. But Sergeant Mattingly's mental resilience got him through the worst of the worst. This is such an important story for everyone to hear for many different reasons. So without further ado, here is Out of the Darkness with Sergeant John Mattingly here on the 10-8 podcast. (coughs) All right, we have John Mattingly here. This is a big moment, big interview, and I'm super excited, sir. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, man? Ah, uh, not too bad. Not too bad. Just catching my breath from a little outside exercise. Kind of burning the candle at both ends this morning, but that's okay. How's life, man? How how are things going with you?
0: I'll tell you what. They've uh, it's settled down a lot. We've gotten to into kind of a groove where you know we don't live where we used to, but and that's that's the biggest uh, you know thing that still burns me a little bit. Still gets me. Uh, the thing I have to tuck my anger inside for. But uh, for the most part, things are great, man. I have no complaints. God's been good, and and our family's safe now, at least for what we think. So uh, we're in a good place.
1: That's good. That's good. That's good. So for everybody that may not recognize your name, may not know your story, let's go ahead. We'll start with that. I'll let you go ahead and kind of give uh, however much or however little you want, and then we'll just kind of go from there.
0: Yeah, so on March thirteenth, 2020, uh, unfortunately, I was the sergeant that was uh, the lead on the raid of the Brianna Taylor case in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, we did knock and announce on that door. We did have the right address. Brianna was not asleep in her bed at the time that we made entry. Um, so everybody knows me from the Brianna Taylor case. Uh, we did go up and knock and announce, like I said, for about a minute. Uh, neighbors came out. Neighbors heard us. People saw us. It caused a commotion. And uh, when they didn't answer the door, we knew they were. In, we knew somebody was inside. We assumed it was just her. And uh, when we finally did make contact and breach the door, um, as soon as I stepped into that doorway, Kenneth Walker was about 30 feet away, standing in a prone position, uh, waiting ambush style. And as soon as I turned the corner, he shot. Went through my upper thigh on my left side, through the femoral artery. Um, I returned fire. And unfortunately, as soon as he shot, the coward jumped behind a wall into a room. Brianna attempted to follow him in there. When she did, that's when she received some of the incoming uh, bullets from myself and, and Detective Cosgrove. Um, she died on the scene. Kenneth took about 16, 17 minutes before he would come out to the police, so no aid was able to be rendered to Brianna. Um, again, because of his foolishness, he didn't call 911 until about six minutes after the event took place. Called his mom first, I'm assuming he got his story straight, what they wanted to tell the police, then called 911, then called Brianna's mom. And then there was a three-way between Brianna's mom and his mom and Kenneth. Um, and then finally, after about sixteen, seventeen minutes, he comes out. The first thing he does is says that Brianna's the one that shot. So he comes out, blames her, um, and then you know the story unfolds from there with the, the national media and and all the lies that took place. It spun so out of control from Ben Crump to the local attorneys um, and and all the news stations, the athletes that jumped in. You know, the LeBron Jameses of the world, the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, the Cardi B's, all of those jumped in and had something to say, you know, including Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. So we were behind the eight ball from the beginning as far as uh, um, public media goes or our perception of us, who we were and how things went down. And the most unfortunate part, the part that was the most disheartening, um, wasn't that that these cowards were saying all this stuff that knew nothing about the case. You expect that. It was the fact that our mayor who had all the details, our chief, who had all the details, because I personally told the chief on day one, the very first day after I was shot, when he came and talked to me, I laid out every detail to him about this case. And... he had it from day one, and they refused to put that out for whatever reason. Um, they, they to this day, here we are, what two years, nine months later, mm-hmm. and they still have not told the truth about the case. They won't. They just keep. Uh, they just put a brand new memorial up to Brianna downtown. They just paid Kenneth Walker, the guy that shot me, two million dollars. So all this stuff is just them covering their tail for whatever reason, whatever behind the, the whole scenario behind it was. Um, so that's where we stand right now. It was kind of a lot, but we'll throw it in there real quick, and then.
1: No, you're good. The the I was my initial thing was going to be amazing, but I didn't really want anyone to hear that and think like I was. It was a positive amazing. It wasn't. It's just like I am in amaze a how it unfolded and how the the narrative kind of took hold and kind of went. They kind of cracked the whip on you guys, and it just kind of sent you guys for a loop. And then so after that, after the case, and obviously. All my listeners are probably very well aware of everything that happened in 2020. What what was the next step for you? What happened in that? How did it all plan, pan out?
0: Okay, so in the beginning, everything was kind of calm. You know, COVID had just taken over. March 13th, the day I got shot, is the day the government shut down. And um, so the president was on, on TV every day a couple of times a day. Our governor was. Mayors were in every city. So in the back of my mind, I knew this could potentially be just a, a windfall of negative publicity. Here you got a white cop shooting an unarmed black female, right? Horrible. And, and it is tragic. Nobody wanted it to happen. But ever since uh, 2015, where you had, you know, in, in St. Louis, all that mess that happened with Michael Brown, the first question we always ask as police officers is, man, were they white or black? Doesn't matter is, was it a good shoot? Doesn't matter, is everybody okay? The first thing that pops in your head, because you know what could happen with this stuff. And it's mm-hmm. a shame it's that way, but that's what it is. So initially we thought okay, maybe this is just going to get passed over like other cases do, and, and nobody will hear anything about it. And I'll be able to recover. I'll be able to get back on the department, go back to doing what I was doing. And unfortunately, uh, mod Aubrey happened. And then Ben Crump got on that case. And once he did, uh, one of the attorneys in Louisville had interned with him during college. They reached out to him and said, hey, can you help us? is not getting any national coverage. So then all of a sudden you had, if you run for mod, run for Bree. And that was the big thing. Say her name. Say his name. So we happened in March. Mod happened in April. And then in May, you know, the pinnacle, George Floyd happened. The almighty God, George Floyd, um, did whatever happened there. The overdose along with the the kneeling on his back, maybe uh, speeding that up. But... The fact of the matter is Ben Crump jumped on that because there's all this money here, right? He's the he's the new Al Sharpton. If, if there's a tragedy, he's gonna exploit it. He's gonna make as much money as he can and runs. So once that happened, then we started getting a ton of threats because now everybody is taking Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd and, and kind of making it one incident, saying we're all a bunch of white racists out here killing all these black people, hunting them down. And that just wasn't the case. All three cases were completely different. One, not even by law enforcement, but somehow it got mixed, you know, put in there. Uh, in the mix of it. So when that happened, the threats started coming in more and more and more. And there were already some, but these were becoming aggressive toward our children, toward our family. Um, and then there were two informants, one for the ATF and one for uh, our narcotics division that stepped up, didn't know each other, stepped up and said, hey, the mother, Brianna Taylor's mother, is in these motorcycle clubs. And we knew that. She's part of a, a group called No Haters. And they rode with street, uh, straight riders. Another club in town, Black Motorcycle Club, sell drugs, sell guns, uh, commit homicides, all kinds of crazy stuff they do. They're the real deal. They're tied in with Sin City out of Chicago. So when all this started happening, these informants came forward and said, hey, Sin City came in from Chicago, met with these two motorcycle groups and their leaders. One of them said, I was there at the meeting. This is what they said. They're taking these cops out. They put a hit on them. And so the FBI took those two statements, those two informants, brought them in, interviewed them both reached out on, on the night of May 31st and said, hey, there's a corroborated threat. We've corroborated this threat that's come in. You guys need to move out of your house. Y'all got to go somewhere. Her birthday's coming up next week. The whole goal, they're, they're doing a balloon release. They want to celebrate the death of one of you all or your family members as a as a way of celebrating, you know, Brianna's birthday. So we were escorted from our house, um, moved a few hours away. Um, we never went back to our house and so that kind of changed our life kind of turned it upside down made this thing really real you know it was real before but but when the fbi calls and says you got to go you know they they kind of put something in your head goes oh man i feel like i'm in a movie you know and you're getting escorted out of town you and your family by 10 12 uh cop cars full of guys with automatic weapons you're going man this is crazy you know all the stuff i've done in my career but this is pretty crazy too and um and the unfortunate part isn't me as a cop because We've dealt with a lot of stuff, as you know, over the years. You see a lot, you hear a lot, people threaten you all the time, whatever. Big deal. You get kind of calloused. But your family's not used to that. Your kids aren't used to that. Your parents aren't used to that. And that totally freaked them out. So now I'm still in protection mode. You know, here I am a, quote, victim. I'm still healing from this gunshot wound. But in my mind, you know, it's full protection mode. i gotta, I got to save my family. That, That's the thought process. So that was, um, that was one of the worst things that, you know, came of all this. But then... The kick in the nads after that that kind of came was 10 days after this started, after May 31st, by the time uh, June, I think, 10th, 11th, the FBI had totally closed this case and refused to investigate it. They said the optics look bad going after a national victim's mother, a black victim's mother. Mm-hmm. And um, and we've got theories to that. Uh, Amy Hess was our public safety director in Louisville at the time over police, fire, and EMS. She was hired in November of 2019 or December of 2019 by Greg Fisher, our Progressive liberal mayor, and she was the highest-ranking female official ever in the FBI. She was she was appointed to DC by Jim Comey. If that tells you anything, what side mm-hmm. she's on. And so when she came to Louisville, I think he brought her here as a buffer to the FBI because she was best friends with the the SAC. Who, if if your listeners don't understand that, is the guy who runs the FBI in Louisville. He's the he's mm-hmm. the leader of that. She was. Uh, best friends with him. She'd go to lunch with him, call him every day. He used to work for her when she when she was coming up the ranks before she got to D.C. And our department had had a huge scandal a couple of years prior where the mayor knew about it. Him and the chief tried to cover up um, some pedophiles that were on the police department running our Explorer program. And mm. they had molested some kids, and they tried to sweep it under the rug. So you talk about criminals, you're talking about the chief and the mayor. These guys covered up horrific crimes against children, and nothing ever happened. But the FBI was still kind of looking at it. So I think he brought her in as kind of a buffer. That stuff miraculously kind of went away. Didn't hear any more about it. But then when this happened, I believe she reached out to her buddy and said, hey, the mayor's already picked his side. He's already all on board with Brianna's family. He's had him on stage. He's pushed, oh, we need justice for Brianna. Uh, these cops need to go to jail. They need to get fired. He'd already picked a side. And, and you know as well as I do, these politicians don't, They never apologize, they never admit they're wrong, they never do any of that. They Mm -hmm. stand their ground. And miraculously, the bosses, who never interfere with these cases, came down and said, oh, no, this case is done. Uh, These informants aren't, uh, they're not good. We don't believe them. However, one of the informants for the ATF was on an active OSADEF case that had already bought guns from Breonna Taylor's mom's motorcycle club. This was an active case going on before our case. And she was mm-hmm. that that informant was still in the middle of that, and now you're telling me this informant's not trustworthy. You know it doesn't make any sense. And then the funny thing is, after they dropped that case, after they moved on, the SAC, Amy Hess's friend over Louisville miraculously got moved to her old division in D.C. got a promotion out of it. So I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm also not the dumbest. I can put puzzle pieces mm-hmm. together. Kind of what right, we do in this right, job, yeah. right? And so you know you can look at it I've called them out on it. I've said it many ways. I put it in my book, Twelve seconds in the Dark that people need to get it's on Amazon it's on sale right now, and it's all detailed in there, and not one time have they come to me and said, "Hey, you need to stop talking about this. It's not true, not one time and so that kind of tells me there's there's a little bit of a truth to the to the flames a bit here. Of
1: the truth right, so you know you said something in there like all this is going on, and at the very beginning of all of it, you're still a victim of being shot, right? Like, that's how this all started, literally. And, you know, I've talked to officers that have been shot on this show before. And obviously, that is a major mental anguish, period. And, you know, being involved in an OIS is, is major anyway. And now you're, you're part of this three-ring circus in the middle of the national um, news cycle, So what was, while this is all going on in the very beginning, early days, as it's all kind of, well, not, I guess before the story broke, but what was your mind like then? Like, were you having issues with your mind leading up to the story breaking nationally?
0: You know, you don't want to sound arrogant or conceited, but I've never once had PTSD from the shooting. I've never had dreams, never had flashbacks, never had the, the, the atypical things you hear other people have. And that's not, I don't think it's because of me. Maybe I think. Maybe because I had, you know, at the time, 20 years on, I had mentally prepared, mentally prepared, physically prepared, all these things over and over. You play these scenarios over in your mind. Um, Plus, when you get shot and you return fire, it's it's not a scenario, sure, I didn't want Brianna hit, right? Nobody wanted that. But at the same time, when you're protecting your life, you know that you didn't do anything wrong in that moment. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I recklessly went in there and did something that caused this. Um, her boyfriend was reckless that caused this. And, um, so my mindset was always, you know, I'm going to heal and get back to work. I told my wife when I woke up in the hospital bed, I said, man, as soon as I get better and go back to work, I'm going through a door. I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm it's the first thing I want to do is do a warrant. And, um, she was like, no, you're crazy. You know? Uh, <laughs> and I'd planned on doing that until all this media stuff broke and the department, uh, wanted to hide so, me in a basement somewhere.
1: Mm-hmm. And so then when that happened, right. And like you said, you know, you're like – you said, you know, why aren't we taking our side out first, right? You you wanted – the chief knew, the mayor knew. Obviously, later you kind of figured out why, but it's like so often we see public information officers or chiefs, you know, getting out ahead of stories and to save the police department, right? And I feel like stories like this are one of the reasons why, but – how helpless or hopeless or I don't know, like powerless, did that all make you feel? Like you're like, oh, let's get our story out goodness. there, guys.
0: Yeah. So we had gag orders on us; we couldn't talk. And so you feel so help, especially when you're used to being kind of in charge and you know mm-hmm. taking control of scenes, taking control of the guys, uh, putting people where they need to be. When it when it comes to where you have the truth at your hands and you can't get it out to people, and at the same time the negative is coming. A million miles an hour at you i mean it's steamer mm-hmm. it steamrolled us is what it did it really did and it was a very hopeless feeling very um uh, I, I don't want to use the word anger because there wasn't a lot of anger it was just i was baffled you know
1: mm-hmm.
0: i expect i didn't expect our mayor to really have our back he's never really liked the police he's made that clear um he's an obama protege He came when when we were the first department, we were the the flagship department for 21st century policing, which is basically hug a thug policing. Uh, So Mm -hmm. they implemented a lot of that on our department back in man 2009, something like that. And um, so I didn't expect a lot from him, but I didn't think he would allow it to get as far as it did. You know, at some point, it's his job to protect the city. He's the mayor. He's the leader of it. And he right. backed off invited. He actually on several occasions got on there and said, We're thankful for these protesters for using their voice. As a matter of fact, you are welcome to Louisville. He said this stuff. And how the right. how the community didn't come in an uproar and go, Are you kidding me? This is our community. You live here. You're one of us that just represent us. You're a mouthpiece for us. And you're allowing these people to come in blew my mind, blew the city's mind, but there was no repercussions from it. So he just continued to do what he did. So the feeling of helplessness and frustration was huge.
1: Yeah, and how did that, as as things went on, right, how did you cope with that? How did you turn that into a voice of power? Obviously, you now have a book, you now have your own platform and everything, but what was that transformation? How did you go from this hopeless, helpless to such a powerful voice?
0: Well, it was just the point where I knew I was going to get it out. I didn't know how. Didn't know anybody. You know, I don't know. I didn't know anybody in the podcast world. I don't know any celebrities. I don't know any big names. I'm, I'm just a cop, right? I'm just out here mm-hmm. hitting the street, doing what we're supposed to do. And I hadn't, I never had a desire to do any public speaking. Never had a desire to, to do this kind of thing because I was like, eh, it's not really me. I'll just do my job and come home to my family. It's all I wanted to do. But when this happened, I knew somebody had to step forward and I looked around and nobody else was doing it. So I said, I'll do it. And, um, I was talking to somebody one day and they were like, document everything because you're going to want to write a book or, you're, you know, or a documentary or something on this because it's so messed up the way things are being presented. So I said, that's fine. I, so I just started screenshotting things I saw, um, kind of document it that way, writing some stuff down. My wife would keep some key dates. And then finally I was like, you know what, I'm just going to put it on paper. And when the, my wife and kid would go to bed, I would just type some stuff out. And it's not hard when it's your story. You know, it's like writing a report. Basically, mm-hmm. this is what happened. Here's the chronological timeline from here to here, and here are the facts. And matter of fact, here's the the documentation to back these facts up. I'm not being a Ben Crump just out here yelling stuff that I have no no backing for. And so that's what I did. And I reached out to some people. Um, and fortunately got a book deal and, and was able to get that out that way. And, and then from that, just led to people like yourself talking to me, trying to get the word out. And that's that's what this is about. People are like, oh, you're profiting off her death. I'm like, number one, you don't understand the book industry. You don't make much money unless you're a, some big name celebrity. They give you a lot of money there. Right. Guys like me, they don't give you much. And secondly, this isn't about Breonna Taylor. This is about my life. And this isn't for me. This is for the guys that are coming after me. Like the cops that are coming after me Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they're going to get screwed over just like I am. If somebody doesn't step up and go, hey, public, this has to stop, you know, talk to your legislators, talk to your mayors, talk to your city council. Do not let other guys get railroaded like this because of politics. It's just not right.
1: Right. There's a uh, I was in an officer involved shooting class down here in Florida, and um, there's a guy in my class and he was telling his story that he was involved in a shooting. Um, I want to say it was in 2019, like about December or so. Um, time goes on. He gets cleared by his agency, cleared by FDLE, cleared by, um, which for everyone listening, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, gets cleared by the prosecutor's office. Time goes on. Election year. Uh, a new district attorney gets in, gets put in. It's a um, very similar uh, George Soros-funded um, District attorney, she reopens this case. It was already cleared by everybody. She reopens it and indicts this guy for something that happened now a year and a half pre- previously. Um, at this time, right? after he was cleared and everything, he was in the process with some alphabet agency up in Washington, whatever. But because he got indicted, because he got arrested, he lost all of that. Literally gets a call from his attorney saying, hey, um, you're going to have to turn yourself in, blah, blah, blah. Again, before that, he's still working the road. He hasn't been taken off the road again. And he's – or no, I'm sorry. I think – I can't remember the specifics at this moment. But he was doing another stop, very similar to the one that led to his shooting. But because of all the things that were going on and the talk that, hey, you might get indicted, blah, 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 blah. He's, like, second-guessing himself. He gets in a, gets in a situation where the guy it was on a, a motorcycle, jumps off his bike, and reaches behind his waist, right? And this guy pulls out his gun. And as he's about to engage a possible threat, he 2nd guesses himself because he knows he's about to get indicted for one. He doesn't want to have a second one stacked on top of it. Reholsters tackles the guy. This guy did have a gun. He was pulling it out. He was going to shoot him. So when you hear a story like yours or a story like this guy's, you realize that this is happening again and again. And, you know, it's been about it's been over almost a year now since I've talked to this guy. So I don't know what the outcome of his story is. But the fact is that this happens all the time. Way, it's, it's, it's becoming way more of the rule than the exception.
0: Charlie, let me tell you, I've the fortunate thing I've had since this has happened, OK, is that I've had dozens of cops or their spouses reach out to me, tell me same stories that you just said, and it's unbelievable. They train you how to do it, they teach you the law, they put you on the street, they ask you to do it, and when you do it, they hammer you. And you're like, how does this make any sense? And there's two factors here that are happening. Cops are getting killed or hurt because they're hesitating, and and the criminals aren't coming off the street, they're becoming more emboldened because they see it also. Mm And so it's a two-way attack on police. Part of it's our own fault, but some of it's out of our control. And so the the saddest thing about this is in five to ten years, if we keep going on this trajectory, the law enforcement community is going to be horrible. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's going to be littered with guys who should never have been cops or gals, whatever, with criminal histories because we're already seeing that. It used to be Mm -hmm. you couldn't have a criminal history. You couldn't have smoked weed within five years. I mean, when I came on, it was very strict, hard to get on. Now, I know here, okay, you couldn't have smoked weed within six months or a year. Uh, You couldn't have sold cocaine within the last two years. And I'm going, couldn't have sold cocaine? Mm -hmm, What mm -hmm. are you talking about? I understand people change their lives and get turned around and they want to do good. That's fine. But some things you're disqualified from, you know, from your past. It's just the way it is. Sure. And, um, and and now the standards are so low and, and they're taking P- – are you breathing? Do you have blood in your body? Well, come on. You're a cop now. Congratulations. And and we're going to look and, and we're going to look back and this is going to be New Orleans and Detroit of the 80s. We're going to have a ton of corrupt cops and it's going to be hard to stand here and defend because there's some things you see online now and you go, oh, that was bad, man. You know, even right. once you know the or, whole scenario.
1: Right. Or you're getting situations where, you know, you've got people that are underqualified because – you know, they're not they're not police material, and I, I don't really know how to say that other than just saying it like that. You know, they're not someone that's going to take down a suspect. They're not going to get physical, you know, and you see that, which is leading to uh, more uses of force or, or more... Um, actually, I was just talking to a buddy last night, and he said ineffective use of force becomes excessive use of force, and that's what we're yeah. seeing. Is We're seeing people bust out the baton when they don't need to, and they could just go hands-on because the, the hiring standards are so low that it's not... They're not getting the right people. And the same buddy I just talked to last night said he uh, he's trained in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Krav Maga, like all these different fighting styles, right? He put in for a different agency because he was looking for greener pastures. And they go their whole process and go – or in the background thing goes, what do you do for hobbies? All these, all these fighting and shooting classes, right? You're a little too aggressive for what we're looking for. Sorry. And they passed on him. And it's like, are you – this is what you're asking for. You're asking for – it's almost worse than Hug-A-Thug. Like it, it's getting so so bizarre the way that the tide is turning.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, you know, the big, the big buzzword now that you can't use, which I love using words they tell me I can't use, is having a warrior mentality. Oh, you can't be a warrior? That's you against society. I'm like, no, you're totally missing the point. A warrior is the, who you want showing up when you're getting your tail beat or when you're getting robbed. You want that warrior to show up, not – To fight society but to protect you and you want a warrior mentality if you get shot so you can stay alive because you're like i ain't dying here i'm going home to my family you want that warrior mentality and the more you take that away from us like you just said the more advanced uses of forces are going to take place because people are going to stand back they're going to depend on that stupid taser which has its place but too many guys just keep squeezing, squeezing. I'm like, if it didn't work the first or second time, it's probably not going to work the third time. And then they don't know, like you said, how to go hands-on or they're scared to. And you've got one guy out of three that will jump in and do it and the other two guys standing back, you know, puckering their tailbone going, oh, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know how to react. And then the one guy gets hurt that was actually doing the right thing. So it's a mess right now is what it is.
1: It, it is. And it, it's going down the slippery slope of of just despair. But it kind of goes back to – What we were talking about about like what can you control and you know talking about your story specifically um it's a great kind of example like you know there was a lot that you could not control until you were able to do something with it and you look at the society you look at law enforcement it's like okay well where are we in that in that paradigm and there's a lot of stuff you know that unfortunately we in law enforcement or we in the law enforcement community can't do much with. We just can only focus on what's in our house and what we do. And, you know, what kind of advice or what kind of I don't know, yeah, I guess advice is the best word I can think of, would you give to these up and coming law enforcement officers who are starting to feel powerless in this changing society?
0: Well, what I tell a lot of people is you've got to you've got to lead your career now kinda of like you run cases because it seems like the further up these guys get in rank, and some of them have never been cops. You know that as well as I do. Some of the mm-hmm. the high rank were never real cops. They were pencil pushers. they they kissed butt to get wherever they got. And so they're not respected anyway. But I tell people document everything. you know if if you're in a situation that you think is kind of could get you in trouble, even though even if you're in the right, we understand, you know, it seems like the times you cut people breaks, the times you're trying to be, super nice to people and go, oh man, I feel for you. Okay. Do they turn around and complain on you for being rude or for something stupid? You're going, are mm -hmm. you kidding me? I did you a favor. And and now I'm in, you know, I having to give a statement and it hems everything up for three or four months. And so, but I would say document stuff just so you have to, you have to CYA. And I don't mean that in a way that, that these pansies do. I'm not talking about the way administration does the CYA, where they lie and they cover up. And they, I'm mm-hmm. talking about you have hard proof, so if you're called to the carpet, you can go, boom, here you go. I've got it. And um, that's a huge thing. But the main thing we're missing is, is just common sense. There is so little common sense in, in policing anymore. I watched that those Capitol Police uh, arrest Ashley Babbitt's mom the other day, and I'm going, that's the hill you want to die on with the public. Because, sure, half the public might think, oh, well, she shouldn't have been there anyway. That's fine. You can think that. But still, was she an unarmed, non-threat, 120-pound female that got shot by a guy who was just cowering in a corner, who now ran away, didn't get investigated for it, got cleared, actually got a medal for killing an unarmed woman? You know, a lot of the public looks at that already at the cops and go, eh, I don't know about that. And then when the mom shows up, not celebrating, but memorializing her daughter, And she's walking in a street that's already shut down, and then they lock her up for it. You know, just use common sense. They didn't, there could, I'm sure there were 100 different routes they could have taken there. Um, But we do ourselves a disservice with attitudes, with our mouths, uh, with lack of of being able to interpersonal communication with people. And I think that's a big thing missing in the academies between the, 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 basically the Brazilian, Brazilian jiu-jitsu type. control of bodies being able to get people under control and handcuff and all that super important but also our mouths being able to talk to people verbalizing things um, so that's on that's on the on the us taking action as far as what we can handle physically as far as as the emotional part of this job or or the pitfalls with with all the crap that's going on man that's tough you just got to keep your eyes open and, and I hate to say it but you just can't trust many people
1: mm-hmm and, like, how important would you say, like, being a disciplined person now is in this job, right? Because, like, you never know when that call is going to happen. So you want to make sure, like you said, document everything, right? But also, like, doing the legwork ahead of time. So that way people can look at you and go, oh, he's got a clean file. He knows, you know, like you said, knows how to talk to people, everything like that. But, like, you know, it's, for me, if, if something happens, right, right? And I've seen it where, like, if there's a shooting, they'll pull your entire personnel record and look at every single time you've been yelled at for not dotting T's and crossing I's. And you want to go from the beginning and make sure all of that looks good. You don't, you know, I joked when I got my first write-up and first suspension. It's like, oh, whatever. It's just another one. But it's it kind of gets to the point where it's like, okay, well, those little things, should something go wrong, could be big things. And it's like yeah. – Kind of leading a more um, I'm sorry, a more purposeful life in this job, so that way, should things go wrong, you're already set up for at least to kind of take the brunt a little bit.
0: Yeah, that discipline is huge because if you plan on having a 25 year career, don't think about today. Think about, like you said, in 25 years, what do I want stacked up in that file? Because you could do something every two years, something stupid, forget to turn in a report, miss court, but then you're looking at. 12, 13 things in your file that if you get in a shooting late in your career, they're going to go, man, look at this list of stuff. The same way we do with criminals, right? When a criminal shoots somebody or does something, we go, oh, man, look at his rap sheet. Well, that's what they do with us. Man, look at this cop's rap sheet. You know, he, he was late to court. He was uh, insubordinate here. He did this. He did that. So, yeah, that's huge, just the forethought of thinking. But two huge pieces of advice I got when I first came on that I think kind of paid off. Number one, never lie. Never lie to your, especially your supervisors. Just don't lie you know, take it. If you did something, take it. Um, and the second thing was, um, and my mind just went blank on me. Um, I have to come back to it, but it'll pop in my head in a second. Uh, but things that, that again, it's just the common sense though. Treat people like you want to be treated. Oh, always think, always know that somebody's there. You know, even before cameras, the big thing was just assume you're getting recorded. Assume somebody's watching you. Because we think sometimes, oh, we're in this dark alley or whatever. I'll get that extra blow in or or whatever. That's going to come back to haunt you, man. If not today, tomorrow, the next year, you know, somewhere down the road, some it's going to catch up with you. So just do the right thing all at the right times, and and you'll be fine.
1: Right. The the uh, age old saying, the age old advice, right? You lie, you die, and that's yeah. how you know. And so, in your case, right, as as everything unfolded and things went crazy and everything. What happened? Did you did it? Like explain. Obviously, it went to court. You went through all that. What what was all that like?
0: You know, me and the in the feds played cat and mouse for months. Uh, they kept wanting me to come in and talk, and I was like, Nah, I ain't talking to you. You know, get a court order. I'm not talking to you. And um, then they're like, No, you got to come in. Here's a subpoena to testify in grand jury. I went fine. I'll plead the fifth. Not that I had anything to hide, but I'm not. Number one, I'm not working their case for them. Mm -hmm. and and number two i'm not going to come out looking like the guy who uh ratted on anybody i know that sounds horrible and that sounds all that's the cops sticking together that thin blue line which you and i know does not exist there's no such thing as a Mm -hmm. thin blue line i mean these guys will climb your back just as quick as the bad guy will and um but i'm still holding up to my I've, i've still got you know integrity for myself things that my name's attached to, I'm only doing them certain ways. So until you force me by a judge's order to talk to you, you can go pound sand, I'm not doing it. And um, so that was the biggest hurdle or the biggest obstacle. And then that hit the media and oh, he's got something to hide. He's lying, he's pleading the fifth, all this. I'm like, think what you want. I really don't care at this point. You already think I'm a racist murderer, you know, all these other things. So think what you want. Um, But yeah, that that was the biggest hurdle. And I would give that advice to other people because There's one guy I know in this case that I don't think did anything wrong, and he was cooperative with the feds, kept coming in. They kept calling him back in, back in, back in, and I think one of the stories at some point got told different than it did before. I don't think it was a lie, but, you know, a year, two years down the road, when you're recounting something that you gave a statement on the day after, if you're not reading it, you're going to leave things out, or you're going to remember something and add it. Well, now he's hemmed up for lying to the FBI. You know, don't give him it sounds again this might sound horrible and the feds are going to freak out but i really don't care i would tell cops specifically don't talk just don't talk take your own advice mm-hmm. you have the right mm-hmm. to remain silent remain silent dude that's all you got to do and then you know you can work through it with your attorneys and other avenues and that's what we did we used different avenues in the legal system to work through it and and got the desired outcome that we wanted
1: and so and and where are you now what what is what is your situation now how are you Dealing with everything, where where are we standing right now?
0: Um, Well, fortunately, all the legal stuff's done, both civil and criminal. Uh, Now, with the officers that that were indicted federally, uh, when that court case comes, if everybody doesn't settle out, then, uh, you know, I'll have to go testify on that in a couple years or a year, however long it takes down the road. Um, But other than that, man, you know, God's opened doors for me to go talk to several law enforcement groups, mainly narcotics groups around the country. Um, and just share my story, give them some pitfalls to avoid. You know, I, I, I linked up with OfficerPrivacy.com, and I don't make any money off of it. But I met the guy Pete James, and I wish I had had this in my life beforehand. Where they go in, and they scrub all your stuff off the internet, so you can't. It's almost impossible to get doxed the way they do it. I mean, he, he's a tad more than these generic other you know organizations that do this but man they are top-notch at what they do and if you Google somebody's name after they put them in there unless it's a news story or something you're not gonna get private information I wish I had done that ahead of time so I'm able to tell them just some pitfalls you know put your stuff in a trust Um, that way when all this stuff comes out in a revocable trust your name's not attached to it it protects you it gives you another layer of protection makes it harder for people to find you. Just different things that God's opened the door for me to be able to help others. Because if you go through something and you do nothing with it but sit that load on your shoulders, what good is that? It does me no good. It does the people around me no good. If I can take that burden and, and unload it by helping others, that's what I want to do.
1: And, and I mean, isn't that kind of what we do in law enforcement anyway, right? We're trying to help people. We're trying to teach others kind yeah. of make people – accountable for their actions and since you've had this situation you're helping others in case anything comes up like that so that way they can maybe accountable is the wrong word but they know what's going on and you're using that from first person experience it's just like you said when you were writing the book it's one thing to be um you know getting out there and talking about stuff you are not qualified for you don't know about but you're literally taking things that have happened to you directly and bringing it back out so others can can learn from your not even mistakes but your experience
0: yeah what do they say a wise man learns from other people's mistakes you know so Mm -hmm. why not i want other people to be wise and learn from this fool's mistakes so uh if they can do that that'd be great
1: and and through all this how would you say your mentality is how would you say your 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 mental well-being is do you do you know did you ever have because i mean to I, and I've tried to like put myself in those shoes, and I just never will. But thinking about like having someone like a LeBron or Oprah or someone you know massive platforms, badmouthing you and your decisions and literally a life and death decision in a split second. Um, first off, how did that directly impact you, and how have you recovered from that?
0: Well, I hated a lot of people for a long time. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if all these movie stars and stuff that I saw if a show came on, that they were on. I was like, nope, I ain't doing it, and I would turn it. I was a big sports guy i haven't hardly watched sports since 2020 because every time i'd turn it on they'd mention something to say her name or have her face on her and and i've told people before i don't care if people say brianna's name that's fine you know remember her i think she was kind of a victim in this as well but at the same time using all the false facts along with it using her as that propaganda tool to push all this crazy narrative of of racism and 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 cops are racist and white supremacy and all this stuff That turned me off to a lot of sports. You know, my hometown team that I've cheered for since I can remember, you know, from my first thoughts were wearing this team's uniform, uh, Louisville. Then their basketball team goes out and marches against us. And their coach at the time, his brother-in-law was a cop, not in our department, but in a nearby department. I'm going, where does this mentality come from? I mean, it's so short-sighted. And so, you know, losing sports kind of hurt. I've chalked up these these athletes, though, and these movie stars and artists and stuff to just a bunch of idiots, man. They just come out and they regurgitate anything that's going to get them that soundbite or that click. And then they're off to the next one. And then they're off to the next one. So it's probably not really even personal. It's just something that they're so used to their life being fake. Everything about it's fake. They act like another person in TV. They go out and they support a team that they claim they love. And then when the next uh, big salary comes up that they get offered, they bail on that team and go to the next one. Mm -hmm. So they're not not committed to anything in their life other than themselves. And so – I've kind of backed off that and was like, whatever, these people are going to be them. I if I spend any more time worrying about what these people think of me or what they say of me, that's taken away from the time that I can heal and move on with my life, with my family. And, and that's yeah. that's the main goal, because those people wouldn't spit on me if I was on fire. But unfortunately, we because it's just in us, I would still help them. It's just the way it Easily. is. Easily, yep.
1: yeah. Yeah. But so you're you're talking about your healing process. How how do you feel about that? Have you have you come to terms with things? Are you doing better with that? How how would you say you're sitting with all that now?
0: Physically good. Um, still have the weirdest thing is the 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 spot of the the wound that went in and came out. That area never hurt. You know, the 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 groin the lower back hurt for months. They, that finally went away. But I I did something to my knee when when I stepped off the curb after I was exiting the scene. Uh, to get to safety, to put the tourniquet on. And uh, that's the only thing that bothers me physically. It was bothering me earlier today. Matter of fact, that's the reason I brought it up. But uh, emotionally, man, I, you know, I, again, not being arrogant or cocky, I just feel good. I've... Um, you know, pushing forward. And, and that's what I tell people, just keep going for quit The rear view mirror is small for a reason, because that stuff behind you don't mean a whole lot. You know, your front, your front window huge. Just keep looking at it and keep going. And, and so that's how I try to honestly live my life. Try to, I've always been a positive person anyway. Um, not very negative. Don't like, don't like conflict. I'm a cop, but didn't you know, like a lot of conflict. So it's easier just to make things work for you. And and that's the area in life where you've got to be selfish because you got to take care of yourself mentally, physically, and um, and I did see a counselor for a while because I think everybody needs to after an event like this just to ha- to get their perspective of things and and, and some insight and right, you know we like
1: outside looking in <clears throat>
0: yeah yeah because we we do get focused you know and for months I was so hyper vigilant and so focused on threats that the other stuff never affected me. Um, but once all that sort of settled down, then the, the part that hurt the worst or the, that affected me the most was the betrayal by my department. You know, somebody, I, some, a place I'd given 21 years to, done everything they had asked, gone above and beyond, never gave them issues, didn't have write-ups. You know, all the things that you would want out of an employee, I gave them. And then to have them basically turn their back on you, that was the hardest part. And that's the part that probably uh, still annoys me or bugs me the most to, to this day.
1: Sure. I mean, that level of betrayal, um, the way you, you know, I know that there's so many people that listen and they talk to me and they message me amazing company men, right? Like they or and women, but, um, you know, they, they do everything that's asked of them, whatever. And kind of the joke that I always make, or maybe the saying I always use is like, it's the most abusive relationship you'll ever be in because they'll never give it back to you. All the stuff, all the dedication, and sacrifice that you give to them. It just won't come back and, or at least you hope it will, but we just see time and time again that it doesn't because, you know, the agency has to protect their interests, so to speak. And it's unfortunate that a lot of times their officers aren't their interest. And, um, so I, you know, I, I definitely understand that, unfortunately. Um, you know, so, so you're, you're obviously, you're doing speaking engagements, you're doing teaching, you're doing your book. Um, what does the future hold for you?
0: Man, you know, I'm not really sure people ask me that i i I don't you never say never but i'll probably never put the uniform on again um, just because of you you know the potential people go oh you know there's an easy lawsuit but you know if i can can just continue to help them people that's that's the main goal i don't know what capacity yet um if it's just simply teaching you know if it's encouraging um you know i've kind of hooked up with this Nonprofit in Nashville for, um, and again, voluntary basis for uh, child sexual exploitation. Trying to see what we can do about that as far as getting mm-hmm. a national register out for. You know, we have our state registers, but there's no national database that that tells what the laws are in the different states and and what the time served and who these people are. So, um, trying to help them on that. So different areas, just trying to continue to serve because that's just kind of what we have. We have the servants mentality. Um, but you know, wherever God opens the door and takes, that's just what I'm willing to do.
1: Yeah, and I, I really like you know when you were talking about like looking at things in the rear view and then hearing what you just said it makes me think like you really and again it's not a place of arrogance, and I don't I don't get that at all. It's it's a it's a place of coming to peace and making amends and like coming to an equal, even keel of what has happened. What you know, I'm I'm so big, and and my listeners are probably getting sick of me saying it, but I'm so big into Stoic philosophy, right? And it's all about living intentionally in the present and worrying about what you can control. And that sounds exactly what you are doing. And and just by what you're saying, you're obviously a man of faith. So you have, you know, that side of it that's kind of guiding you. And I think that the takeaway from your story that I would want to take or want to pass along to my listeners is just that, you know kind of letting it all just go, you know, and letting it just kind of come what may kind of thing. And I think that's so important because when you've been through the ringer, like you've said, and like you've explained, literally being forced out of your house, you know, I I, I don't even know how I would mentally take being, being told, Hey, you got a green light on you. You gotta, you gotta get out of Dodge. Like, you know, all the things that you have endured and continue to push. I mean, that, that is the, you know, textbook definition of resiliency. So I really just appreciate everything that you have endured and then the ability to take that message and push it over to, to the generations coming up.
0: Well, I think resiliency, just like happiness, just like laughter. I think it's all contagious. And I think if if you go out there and show people, Hey, it's possible. Hey, here's how I did it. You know, I'm nothing special, but here's how little old me got through it. You can do it too. And, and then the next guy shares it with the next guy. And that, I think that can kind of snowball. And, and, and we need more of that, especially nowadays. I mean, you, you know, you could, if you get online and just look at Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and you're going to be depressed because everything is negative, 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 negative. Um, but if you get out there and you push and you show people, hey, it's possible, then they go, okay, here's a real life, not somebody behind a screen, not somebody behind some little keyboard type and stuff, but here's somebody that's done something real with it. And, and I think that's important for people to see.
1: I think that makes all the difference, absolutely. You put out in the world what you want to get back to it, and that's kind of where I've always been as well. Um, all right, man, I got I got a few listener questions that they wanted to ask some questions for you, and yeah. then, uh, then we're going to do one other, my only scripted questions that I had for this whole thing. We'll do that, and then we'll get out of here. All right. All right, so the first one I got is this guy says, or this person, I think it's a guy, says, uh, love the book. Anything you would go back and change about it or releasing it?
0: Yes. Um, So when I went with my first publisher, I'm sure everybody knows or has somewhat heard it, it was due to be released in September of 21. And that's when things were still kind of fired up and still heated. Um, Simon & Schuster, who are the distributors, they're the number three distributor in the world, they came in and said when they caught some heat realizing the book was coming from me, they were like, nope, we're not going to do it. At that point, I had several national big media, Fox News, uh, CNBC, all those big people coming going, hey, come on and give us an interview about them canceling your book. Well, my publicist at the time, well-meaning, said, man, I don't want you getting on there and talking about anything yet. Hold on, man. I'm I'm behind you. We're going to still get this book out. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And being new to it, being naive, I was like, okay, man, I mean, you're the you're the boss kind of. You're not really the boss. I could still get on there and do it. There was no obligations to keep me from doing it. But I'm trusting your professionalism. Well, that kind of that kind of put a hiccup in things, right? It kinda once that momentum's lost, it's hard to pick it back up in national media. And that kind of killed momentum there. I should have jumped on and made us made a storm about it just so the word gets out. Not not for selling of mm-hmm. the book, but because it's important for this truth to get out. Um, because since then, like Fox will not have me on, they won't touch the story. Um, mm-hmm. since I'll, or none of their people that's related to them on their podcast or anything else. They're like, no, we won't, we don't want anything to do with it. Um, so, uh, all these big names that talk all this brave, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to fight the, you know, fight the, the, the big daddy and all that. Then when the time comes and the, the rubber hits the road, a lot of them back yeah. off because they don't want that controversy. So yeah i would that's one thing i would do different i may i may have added some more uh family personal stuff that we went through some stories about that because you know at the time i had a a five-year-old son um i've got three adult children then an eight-year-old now but he was five at the time just some of the different trials he went through i mean he still has night terrors from this some of the stuff he saw and heard even though we did our best to protect him you know, this is life. You can't put them in a, in a room and lock the door all the time. So I would add some of that just to make it a little more personal for people with kids that understand the trauma that, that these kids actually go through.
1: Yeah, I understand that. And, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying about the, the news media and, you know, the, the ones that say like, oh, we support cops, blah, blah, blah. And then they back off real quick. It's like, you know, when I was still on the job and they're talking about, oh, the silent majority and the pendulum swinging. I was like, Listen. It's, it's been how long, and the Silent Majority ain't saying shit? Like, where are they really? And it, it just kind of I first like, heard that in the 80s. Mm-hmm. The
0: Silent Majority was a big thing in the 80s. You know, I think Jerry Falwell back then was talking about it, and and it was a huge thing. And I'm like, okay, when's the Silent Majority coming? I'm like you. Like, like when did that red wave come? Oops, it didn't. You know? yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of talk, but people are scared, man. They're scared to step up.
1: Right, and, you know – I, I again I feel like the people listening to this are already on that team, on the on the correct team, right? But if you are listening and you're one of those silent majorities, you know, speak up, but again, I think it's all just, you know, like you said, it, it's a fearful thing that they're afraid of what's gonna come. And I feel like the big names, right, the the ones we spoke about earlier, not to say their names again have made it really hard for people to want to get out there and say the right thing. Cause they, you know, they don't want to be canceled or doxed or whatever. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate, but luckily, you know, I like to think that conversations like this and the ones that we do get out there are enough to start pushing that envelope and realizing that there's, it's just, again, the common sense thing. I, I feel like we're, we're fighting against the uncommon sense or lack of sense there is. So hopefully we're, we're doing it all in the right way. Um, right. Next question I got: Did you ever prepare mentally or consider where you could be at today?
0: No. Um, you, you know, I talk a lot about how when you go through the academy, they teach you defensive tactics. They teach you how to present in court. They teach you how to write reports. They teach you law. They teach you how to drive a car. They teach you how to shoot. They teach you all these things, but they don't cover not one minute of the academy what to do after an officer-involved shooting, after a critical incident where it could be huge. Nobody prepares you for it. There's no guidebook for it. And that's another thing we've been trying to kind of put together kind of a guidebook for, if you're in this, this is what you need to prepare for, like a checklist. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, a foolish mistake I made during the middle of this. We had sold our house in January of, of uh, 2020. It was right when the housing market started taking off. Took us months to find another house. We put ours on the market. The next day it was gone. We moved in with a friend in their basement while we were tra- putting in bids on houses, kept getting outbid, or it was gone before we did it. Um, well, I thought this is going to be real quick a month or two, no big deal. So, what did I not do? I didn't change my emergency contact at work how to get a hold of my wife because what's going to happen to me, right? I- I'm good. Nothing's going to happen in this quick, short month. Mm-hmm. Naturally, it did. Nobody knew how to find my wife. They had to go through some, fortunately, I've got some good detective friends who were able to, oh, Facebook, let's look at this person who their friend, boom, boom, boom. Looked them up in accurate different places, reached out, went to their house, boom, found her quickly. So good Good to have good investigators that are your friends that can find somebody. Um, but stuff like that that I didn't prepare for, um, again, like I talked earlier, the, the go ahead now, ahead of time, get your information mm-hmm. scrubbed. Does no good after the fact. Those people are quick, man. They get on it. Um, so, yeah, mentally I prepared for shooting. I'd gone over that scenario a thousand times in my head. You know, what I would do, how I would react, different different ways. So, mentally, I was ready for that. When that happened, it was just plug and play, honestly. It was just boom, 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 okay, give me a tourniquet, let's get to the hospital, let's do this. I was in control in that scene. I was alert enough to be, hey, I need a tourniquet. Hey, get EMS here. Hey, do this. I was still giving commands you know, on my back. Mm-hmm. So mentally, I was prepared for that. But no, I did not prepare for the aftermath. And I wish I would have
1: right. And that, again, like we said earlier, that's what all that that pre planning your career from day one, that's what all that is. And there were plenty of times during my career where I, I knew that, you know, stuff wasn't lined up as far as like my personnel file, you know, would people know how to reach my emergency contact, things like that. So yeah, it's small things. But at the end of the day, they're they're massive things. So you're I'm glad that you shared that. My uh, next question is not really a question. Same guy, just wanted to say that he uh, bought your book and gave it to his buddy because he was buying the the media's BS. So he just wanted to let you know that. Well,
0: appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, and you then are. the
1: last one is my buddy over at the Heroed Out podcast. He wants to know why he, you're not wearing his Heroed Out shirt for our podcast.
0: Oh, because it's not it's not being shown.
1: He right. knows I have <laughs> <Right>, it. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. Hey, tell him to
0: send me some more stuff and I'll wear more of it.
1: All right, there you go, Kyle, if you're listening. That, that's an order. All right, just and don't then, choke uh, me out, the Kyle. Last, <laughs> the last little bit that I got for you is what I call the mental minute. Just a couple thought-provoking questions to kind of see where you're at and maybe give some guidance to the people listening. So first one is, what's the best book you've read recently?
0: Oh, man. Um, it was uh, Tim Kennedy's book, uh, Stars and Stripes. Yeah, Did I just want- enjoyed it. Yeah, okay. it's a good book.
1: What is something you do to ground yourself?
0: Oh. Phew. Well, my kids keep me grounded. My wife keeps me real grounded. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, well, where we, where we have moved is, is a very... so I grew up in the city my entire life. You know, everybody thinks Kentucky's all hillbillies and stuff. It's not. You know, you got hillbillies there. Trust me, but Louisville is just a city like St. Louis, like Minneapolis, like any other city. I grew up there my whole life, inner city in rough area. And you know, as I got older, I didn't move out of out of the inner city of Louisville till I was thirty years old. I've been a cop for three years and still lived in one of the worst parts of town so once i got out of that i'm still in the city but now i live in a rural area that there's nothing i mean it takes like 35 minutes to go to a a grocery store so where i live is kind of grounded me um but again it's it's i'm not a i'm not a super religious guy i grew up in a super religious household but my faith my my foundation is in, in god and that's the thing that keeps me grounded the most or that I go back to because, uh, you know, I'm human like everybody else. I get out of line. I do things I should and I do whatever. And I've, I've got to pull myself back in. So that that's probably it.
1: And I feel like, you know, I grew up in a place that you are describing that you live now. And I live in a place where you're describing you came from, right? And it's been a culture shock. And it's, oh, it's like crazy. the serenity yeah the serenity that comes from nothing right like nothing being around you is so nice and like i said before we press record i was taking a walk but it's so different when you're walking city streets versus just walking in nature or wilderness or whatever so you know but i definitely can see how that is grounding for sure both of them are but just in different ways what is something you do for self-care
0: uh mentally or physically both um well mentally like i said i I still am, I became kind of friends with the the counselor I talked to, so if I need anything, I can pick up a phone. Uh, Another counselor I met who's a great guy, uh, retired cop, went back to school, got his doctorate degree, um, the, the Angry Viking, is what he goes by on, mm-hmm. online on, on Instagram, but good guy. Doesn't look like a counselor. Got the big beard, got the hair pulled back, you know, muscular guy. So you, you look at anything, guys, oh, dude's gonna kick my, my butt, but then, you know, super great guy. So, you know, I'll reach out and talk to them guys when I need to. That's the mental part of it. Physically, uh, now that I'm out in more nature, I don't like go to the gym and stuff. There's no gym around, uh, but we do a lot of physical stuff around here, uh, hikes and, and, you know, Uh, isometric stuff and all that i would love to get my son into jujitsu. i did that for a while and it was awesome um probably the hardest workout i've ever done so Mm -hmm. eventually we'll get him into that and doing that but you know he's into all the sports right now so we're staying busy doing that stuff too
1: good good would you open up an envelope with your death date written inside of it
0: sure death doesn't scare me man you know, I know where I'm going when I die, so I, I would almost like it because I'm more of a, a deadline guy. Like, if you say it's got to be done here, I'll push harder than if it's just got to be done at whenever, and then I'll put mm-hmm. it off and procrastinate, you know, I'll do all that stuff. But if I had a, a definite end date, I would, I, I'd I'd kind of embrace it. I think so.
1: Okay. Would you be friends with yourself? Oh, yeah. I'm a great guy. Friends with everybody. <laughs> all right uh what do you want from other people
0: honesty period that's it just don't lie to me you know i don't need i don't need your money i don't need your help i don't need your time um just don't lie to me if if you if i ask for help and you can't do it just tell me you can't don't give me some bs excuse um but yeah if i'm messing up i want you to tell me i need that kind of friend that says hey dude you're, you're you're screwing up don't do that
1: Nice. Nice. And that, I mean, that holds us all accountable when people are honest with you, that gives you accountability and that's what we want. Doesn't always
0: feel good. Doesn't always sound great, but you know, you need it.
1: Absolutely. What sort of impact are you looking to make and how do you make it?
0: Two, two forms of impact. Okay. I want to impact the officers that are out there to keep them encouraged. Um, and to, to help them, like I said, watch for pitfalls, but I also want the public to see the side of us that's human, that If you chase all these guys off who have this super tough job, right? It's not an easy job. If you chase all the good ones off, we're all screwed because they are the ones keeping the wolf from the door. And the more that you push them away, the more that you demonize them, the more that they quit, move on to other things, get fired, whatever, the worse society is going to become. Because like we talked earlier, when you plug these other guys in there that aren't equipped for this job mentally, physically, uh, emotionally, we're in trouble. And so that's the impact I want to have. And, like, I'm going to talk to the the female Republicans of Kentucky uh, on January 17th here. And so on the political side, I'm going to be able to give them my story because we all know women run households, right? Mm-hmm. We men, we mm-hmm. can stand there and pound our chest. We can have the muscles. We can have whatever. But women run the show. So by talking to these, these female, these leaders' females' wives and giving them the input, that police officers need, the kind of support we need from them, from their husbands, from the guys who are pushing the money into into our politics, then maybe that can have some impact on the civilian side of things and not just, you know, we can encourage police all we want. But like you said earlier, there's only so much we can control, only so much we can do. And once we hit that ceiling, we need help from other people. And so mm-hmm. if I can do that from both ends, that, that's what I want to do.
1: Awesome. That's great. That's great that you're able to do that.
0: How do you define the word Friendship. I think it's it's uh, I don't think it's much different than marriage. I think it's like a giving. If I think you've got to be willing to be the one that is a a doer and giver and not expecting in return, but if that friend has that same mentality, then you're taking care of each other. I've got a couple of friends that man I can go three months without even talking to them and pick up the phone and call them or see them and we just fall right in place didn't miss anything, not mad at each other for not talking to each other or calling each other. It's just the way it is. And that's because we have trust in each other. If I need something, I know who I can call. If you kind of, you know, the, the old phrase, and this might get me in trouble on here because I am I was a cop and, you know, crooked cop, but if you had to bury a body with somebody, you know, there's only two or three people probably in your life that you can call that, that's real friendship. And so I think it's just the fact that, that the selflessness if, if you're selfless to a friend and they're selfless to you, that's when things really work.
1: How do you define the word happy and what makes you happy?
0: Well, there's happy and there's peace. I think happy is, is very surface. You know, if I eat some chocolate, I'm happy. If I, if I, you know, go shoot guns, I'm happy. But the peace comes from just being, accepting who I am, where I'm at in life, because like there's some things I just can't change. And once I come to peace with those, then I'm happier. Then everything, everything else around me just kind of settles down. Uh, it's kind of like when you go fishing and and everything gets quiet for a while. Then all of a sudden you start seeing the fish, you know, jump around the pond, and you're like, oh, okay, now this is kind of serenity, this is peace, and and that's kind of life. If I'm going, 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 so hectic and trying to make myself happy and don't have that peace inside, then it's all for naught. And and it's like I said, it's all surface happiness, but I don't want that. I want that genuine peace and that genuine uh, serenity.
1: And the last one I got for you today, what do you think is the meaning of life?
0: Well, if you're going on a biblical stance, the meaning of life is obviously glorifying God and bringing people to him. Um, Here on the physical earth, I think the meaning of life is doing something productive in society, not just not being a leech or a taker. And I think, unfortunately, our society is becoming more of what can you do for me? What can you give me for free? What can you do, do, do for me as opposed to what can I do to help you? Because I think just like in the friendship area, when I decide my meaning in life is to help other people, then if I get some of that in return, great. But if not, that's not why I do it. If I can go out here and make a difference and be helpful to somebody, then I think that's the meaning of life.
1: All right, Sergeant Mattingly, this was an amazing conversation. I appreciate everything you said. I really appreciate your insights. Uh, thank you so much for your time. If people want to get in contact with you or if they want to see what you're doing or whichever, how do they go about in finding you? Just
0: on any of the social media channels, it's at Sergeant Mattingly. It's S-G-T Mattingly, M-A-T-T-I-N-G-O-Y. Um The book, 12 Seconds in the Dark, is Amazon's the easiest way to get it. You can go to like Books A Million and Barnes and & Noble um, or you know Target.com, Walmart.com, all of those. But uh, Amazon right now, I think it's like $15.67, $16.00. Um, and you can get the book that way. And it'll give you a lot more details, not just about the, the case, but about my life, about my career. And um, I think you really enjoy it. But, yeah, at Sergeant Mattingly, and I'd uh, love to have you.
1: All right. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Everyone listening, stay tuned. We'll wrap this up. And, uh, Sarge, we'll, we'll talk to you later.
0: Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate
1: it. All right. Whenever I have guests like this with stories like this, guests that have been neck deep in the shit, I feel like I sound like a broken record when I talk about the most important things that we need to focus on. When the quote unquote game is on the line and you need to have it all, I hate the people that say, oh man, I can turn it on when I need it. Listen here, Bruno, you're full of shit. And no, you won't. You need to get this figured out beforehand. You need to know how your body's going to react in high stress situations on and off the job. And that's why I push mental health and personal growth. Whether you're in crisis or just building healthy habits for a good life, it is so important. Like John said, he was mentally prepared to get shot. And he had strong support systems. His family unit and his friends were strong. All these things that I've been talking about for months now, you practice how you intend to play. And you practice for real. And I'm not just talking about jiu-jitsu and firearms training and, and running and swimming and all those things, no. You need to have be mentally up there too. And you know, guys, when I talk about these things, I'm never actually talking from some ivory tower or that, you know, I'm on a pedestal and I'm better than you. I'm, I'm very much a work in progress myself. A lot of the times when I say things on here, I only say them after battling with them myself for a long time and finally feeling comfortable enough to share them with you. From summer 2021 to right now, I've dealt with tragedy, despair, uh, and the depression and anxiety that comes with it. And actually, honestly, my, from like my high school life to now, I've dealt with it one way or another, and I've had to learn how to adapt and everything. And I've, like I said, I've had the depression, anxiety, the negative coping mechanisms. I've had all the, the terribleness from June, 2021 to, um, I want to say it was right in the beginning of the fall, I was at my heaviest weight. I gained 60 pounds. My coping mechanisms were alcohol and food. and obviously going to dispatch didn't help at all, but I was eating and I was drinking. And you know, when all this stuff was going on with Jason and my sister, uh, I remember sitting in their kit in my sister's kitchen, just drinking coffee with lots of creamer in it and eating snack cakes and, you know, things that were just not good for me. And then, as things went on, um you know, as my sister passed away, and we would have food, donated to us through meal trains and things like that. You know, it was a lot of pasta, a lot of stuff that, you know, you can make in bulk and for cheap and everything like that. And that didn't go away. And there's some days where I have rough days and I look and I'm like, oh, I've been eating, eating a little rough. But it's embarrassing that I'm sharing this with you. But it is a true story about how terrible things cause terrible things for you. And, you know, I have since gotten better um, I've gotten serious about eating right, turning stuff around. I've been losing weight slowly, but surely I've been working. I've been posting on Instagram with fit life foods. It's not an ad. I wish it was cause I truly, I enjoy all the food that I get from them and I'm starting to take, you know, different supplements to kind of help with that. Getting my mind right by going to therapy. I actually, uh, as of this recording, it's been about three weeks since I last had alcohol and uh, I've cut other bad habits out and i've started building new ones and you know like i said last week i was doing 75 hard going for walks going to the gym more as a matter of fact from january 1st to right now which i'm recording this on january 30th i have gone to the gym more times in this last month than i've had uh you know in a single month in the past year so that being said like i'm trying you know and so I don't want to sit here and tell you guys, hey, you know, you should go to the gym. You should train, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be a hypocrite sitting here not doing anything. I am doing it and we are going through it together. And some of you guys, I know who listens and you guys are in better shape than me. Great. But then you'll come around and be like, hey, you know, my mental is not good. Cool. Like we, we are never going to be a finished product and we're always going to be building and improving and things like that even, you know, when I talk about stoicism, like I'm a practicing stoic, right? Because I'm never going to be a stoic. I'm never going to be that pinnacle. I'm never going to be Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus, but I'm always practicing. I'm always trying to get better. And that's kind of how I view everything. And I just started reading or listening, I guess you could say, a new book, Atomic Habits. And I've also started reading um, Aaron Lohman's book, which is uh, all about fixing yourself and getting better. So I'm trying here. So All that being said, guys, I really hope that this story today inspired you and also educated you about what's going on and what has happened and how John has overcome his struggle. So go buy his book, 12 Seconds in the Dark. It's out now. Uh, An amazing read. You want to check it out. Get the full uh, lowdown on everything that happened. And uh, once again, special thanks to John Mattingly for his time and sharing that with me. Next week, my guest is a little bit of everything. He's an author podcaster. He's an expert on different TV shows. He's a veteran. He's a law enforcement officer. He's a competitive shooter. And he's all that. (laughs) My guest is Dr. Jason Piccolo. He has appeared on Court TV, Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Outnumbered, Skillset Magazine. And next week, I'm so happy. I'm so fortunate to have him on the 10-8 podcast. And we're going to talk a little bit about everything. It's a great conversation that you don't want to miss. Fun fact, he and I went to the same high school. Had no idea about this uh, a few years ago when I first started following him, and it's just crazy that you know two people. I mean, it's a small world after all. Uh, in the meantime, guys, go check us out all over social media, Instagram, Twitter, True Social, all that. You know what? I, you know where to find me. Share your favorite episodes with your friends. Let's bump those numbers up. Got to bump those numbers up. Uh, check out the merch store. Got new stuff coming in. I've got. Uh, Two new stickers. You guys know that. I got Uncultured Swines and I've got a Memento Mori sticker. The Memento Mori sticker is going to be turned into a t shirt. Stay tuned for that. It is sick. And uh, as always, go check out my sponsors. We got a new sponsor this week. So definitely be sure to check them out as well, especially if you're into jujitsu and stuff like that. So until next week, folks, take care of each other. Stay safe. 10 10-8, 8 out.